the best salespeople that are out there handling rejection every day do it through confidence. They do it through resilience. But I think most importantly, Aviv, they do it by seeking to understand why the rejection took place. Welcome to Create New Futures. Thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. Your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders and interesting people to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your business. This is Aviv. And today I'm speaking with Pfizer Huell. Pfizer is the VP of sales at Ring Central, with more than 20 years of inside sales experience. Her passion and unique talent is in building, training, scaling, and motivating successful sales teams. A trailblazer in her space, Pfizer started in the software as a service world when she was 17 and has been selling SaaS solutions ever since. She found her unique niche working to connect small businesses with solutions that help their companies grow. Pfizer was part of the WebEx winning team, and at Ring Central, she leads the small to medium business program globally and have catalyzed a high-velocity growth. She's driven and focused on achieving sustainable results and alignment and exceeding sales targets. I initially met Pfizer in the early 2000s when I created the Emerald Keys program for the WebEx sales teams. In this conversation, I ask Pfizer about the traits of successful salespeople, about women in leadership in the Silicon Valley, and much more. Here, then, is my conversation with Pfizer. So, Faiza, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Aviv. Thanks for having me today. Let me ask you first, what are you currently working on at Ring Central? By title, I'm the Vice President of Sales, leading small business, sales and business development. By actual function, I really foster communication within the organization to execute our strategies, inspire employee development, and overall business growth. And for people not familiar with Ring Central, what is Ring Central about? Ring Central is a global provider of cloud unified communications and collaboration solutions. We empower today's mobile workforce to conduct their communications anywhere on any device through voice, video, team messaging, collaboration, SMS, conferencing, online meetings, and contact center. <laughs> right. Uh, I believe. What you said is that your team empowers business owners to work where they are and connect with colleagues and partners and customers whenever they need in whatever medium or tool they need. I suppose what you're describing is that uh, Ring Central is offering a seamless, omnipresent communication solution. You've hit the nail on the head, Aviv. Exciting. So I'm interested that what we do here today, that we trace to some of your earlier experience and that we travel through some of the key lessons and key insights that helped you excel and evolve through your career. And so a good place to begin is to ask you, what was your earliest business and sales experience? So Aviv, I, I thought through this quite significantly. And if I were to trace this back, I actually would like to trace it back to a moment of time in my adolescence when I was nine years old. My mom had a friend that owned a small boutique in Saratoga and her boutique had gone out of business. She had a lot of things to get rid of. You can imagine clearing out a store that you've you know, had a storefront of 20 years. In that, she had a lot of costume jewelry she sold in her boutique and she thought it would be fun for me to be able to play with this costume jewelry. So she came to our house one evening with this giant box. There was probably three, 400 pairs of earrings and bracelets and necklaces in this box that she thought it would be fun for me just to play with. While it was fun for a day or so, I realized I really didn't need all of these things. And I saw an opportunity, an opportunity to to sell them. And I thought perhaps maybe I could help her because she was going through a tough time. I actually 
built a stand. My mom was a general contractor at the time, and I used some of the tools and the wood in her garage to build a stand. While most kids my age had lemonade stands, I built a jewelry stand. I sat out there for hours and hours and hours. A friend of my mom's came over that evening and asked me what I was doing outside, standing behind this big block of wood. And I let him know that I had I had started a business and that I was selling jewelry. He asked me a series of questions. And through these series of questions, I actually got slightly annoyed. I was wondering, why is he asking so many questions? He asked me how it was going. And I said, not well, I've only sold three pairs. He asked me why I thought I had only sold three pairs. To summarize, you know, through this series of questions, what he led me to was trying to see what I could do to sell more of these earrings. And through the conversation with him and all of the questions, I not only learned how to be a better salesperson in that moment and get rid of these earrings, I also learned how to understand when adults are asking questions, what it meant and why, and how they leverage questions to help drive an outcome. In this case, the outcome was I needed to advertise these earrings. I didn't have any signage. You couldn't see what was on my stand from from the road when somebody was driving by. And I needed to put something compelling that attracted people to want to stop on my stand or around me. So I did that. And for the rest of that weekend, I sat outside and I sold many pairs of earrings. But more importantly, I learned a little bit about communication and that exchange with my mom's friend. It's a great story. And what's beautiful is that it communicates that on day one, in your first business experience, <laughs> you also attracted the first coach or mentor uh, to you, which uh, by itself is a great lesson. Absolutely. When you reflect on that journey that perhaps started there, what's the next step in that journey? What is the next business experience and, and sales experience that you are led into after? that jewelry stand. Yeah, absolutely. I actually worked most of my childhood being raised by a single mom. There was a lot of things that, you know, we always wanted as kids. I think kids always want new things. And while we had what we needed, we didn't have always what we wanted. And I was motivated by that want to to get out there and work. I began working at a very young age. I started working part-time at the age of 14. I worked for a hot dog cart. And this hot dog cart was located at a car dealership. And my job was to give away free hot dogs. And the owner of the hot dog cart also had items for sale, such as hot links and sausages. And he shared with me that if I sold those things, that he would give me 50 cents per hot dog or sausage, in addition to my hourly rate. I took it upon myself to show up on time, get to work early, be productive, all the things my mother had taught me growing up. I also found something intriguing about this, what would proved to be my first commission model at 50 cents per hot dog or hot wing that I sold. What I did was I decorated that sausage with all the toppings and condiments you can imagine. I made it look beautiful. And I did that every weekend on Saturday when I'd arrive, I'd take out a hot link, I'd decorate it with all the tomatoes and onions and condiments you can imagine. I'd display it very nicely on a plate with potato chips. And I'd put that up on the top. The customers of the car dealership would think that that was the free hot dog that they were received. And there would be long lines. You can imagine the free food that results in long lines. But when they would get to the front of the counter, I'd quickly tell them, no, I'm sorry, this is the free hot dog. And I'd show them the free hot dog. And they never wanted it. They always wanted the item I had on display, which caused me to sell out every single weekend. By the end of that summer, I had made a tremendous amount of money. And I caught on to the fact of people want what they can't have. And they couldn't have the, the beautiful hot dog I had on display. They really wanted for free. They had to pay for it. And they were willing to do so because it's what they wanted. So it was a very good early experience. You know, from then, that was my last, that was a one and only summer of, of, of the me in the food industry. But, it wasn't but for me. You, did you say people want what they cannot have? People want what they cannot have. Right. And, and they're willing to pay for it if it's not free. And I learned that. I wouldn't want the free hot dog either. It wasn't a very attractive looking hot dog. That's the first big lesson there. And the other big lesson is lesson about differentiation. You, you've created the differentiated hot dog that, that attracted enough people to, to want to have it. That's great. That leads you next into what? At the age of 16, I actually moved from a regular high school into an independent studies high school. I attended school one day a week on Tuesdays. I had been working from the age of 15, once I was 
technically legally able to work for a company by the name of Anwell's Personnel Services. It was a temp agency similar to Manpower. At 16, you know, moving to regular high school and only going to school one day a week, I was afforded the ability to work full time and I began doing so. I mostly took jobs that were clerical or administrative. And one day I was sent for an interview. It was a longer assignment than I was used to. It was a three to six month assignment, which made it very attractive to me for a company by the name of Mitsubishi. The division I'd be working for was the Information Technology America division. And they had created a technology that was SaaS. We didn't know it was called SaaS at the time. It was really more managed service providers back then. And this technology allowed you to remotely access files from your computer through a laptop device if you were traveling. And this was during an era where people had traditional old-fashioned computers. Laptops were fairly new. Not everybody had them, but most business professionals did. I was a telemarketer, and it's what they called it at the time. Today, we call that sales development. Going into that opportunity, I'll remember the interview like it was yesterday. I remember walking into the conference room where the interview would be conducted, and the VP of sales and marketing and the director of marketing, John Harrell, I'll never forget him, chuckled as I entered the room. And I had to ask them, I said, excuse me, gentlemen, may I ask what's so funny? And they said, we weren't expecting a kid to walk into the room. And I said, I wasn't expecting to walk into this big conference room for an interview to do clerical work. And they said, this isn't clerical work. What were you expecting? And I said, I was expecting to be interviewing for a data entry position. And they said, no, it's not a data entry position. It's a telemarketing position. And I asked, well, what is that? And they asked if I knew, if I'd ever sold anything before. And I shared with them my experience in selling hot dogs and earrings. They laughed. It was enough to conversation to strike some interest. And we went on with the interview. At the end of the interview, they said, you have no experience. You're not what we were looking for, but we do like you and we're going to give you a chance. I went on to work for Mitsubishi for a few years. I grew to become the leader of their sales development team, hiring four other sales development reps. And back then, you know, leads weren't a thing. It was all outbound prospecting and hunting. And I would sit and I remember very, very late nights going through PC magazines and different technical publications looking for the names of CTOs. And then we would go and do research to find their contact information. And we were pitching the software. That software, that technology today comes with every Windows application, the ability to remotely access a file from your machine. But back then, this was groundbreaking and, and it was where SaaS was becoming something. What do you think are the, the key lessons, the key insights from discovery for you? And even from this initial conversation, what you're describing there for me paints the value in the picture and the learning about how critical it is to build relationships in the moment. And you walked into that room for the interview. They ask you questions, but you ask them right there and then questions back. And you developed, in that sense, a peer-like relationship, even with superiors, which is the best way to approach a relationship. Say more, describe more what are for you the key learnings from that time with Mitsubishi. My biggest takeaways from that experience was to always be confident, to be proud of who I was, but more importantly, to trust that even if I hadn't done something, I wouldn't know if I could do it unless I tried. And that's something I think people shy away from today. There might be opportunities that they want to pursue, but they don't for fear that they may not be able to. And I think it's the wrong mindset to have. I think you should go into every endeavor thinking that you can and finding and learning. You might not hit a home run out of the park. I, Lord knows I stumbled along all of those cold calls I was making so many times until I finally found the right way to find the right contacts to help penetrate that market and get us some visibility in the space. But it didn't happen in my first call. It didn't happen in my hundredth call. It probably happened in my thousandth call. So you are finding yourself on the ground floor, so to speak, of the SaaS space before it, it even has this name. And you're finding yourself right there and then in sales. And at what point do you recognize and know, yeah, this is working for me. This is something I am going to excel at and is certainly a good fit for me. At what point do you have that self-awareness? I would say it was about six months into the role. I had the self-awareness. They actually dissolved the Information Technology America group that I was a part of. And we went and shopped the technology and the idea, myself and John, to another group called the Business Internet Division. Working with the engineering team, we made this more cloud-based. We didn't know it was called the cloud at the time, but we made it more internet-centric is what we referred to it as at the time. 
And it was in that moment of switching from division to division that I realized that not only was sales something I always wanted to be a part of, but it's something that involves an internal sales component as well as an external sales component. It takes bridging internal conversations, external conversations, and a lot of collaborations across different groups to make something successful. And it was very intriguing to me. It made me really want to learn more about how a business operated, but more importantly, how did a sales organization operate within that business? My guess is six or seven or sometimes eight out of 10 people shy away from sales roles. There is something about your aptitude and natural approach to sales that made you a good fit for it. How would you answer that question? Why did you excel at sales and and why is it that so many people shy away from it? I think people shy away from it because they fear rejection. A lot of people, you know, it's not just rejection to be, but I also think that being in the sales arena is definitely a roll up your sleeves and get in there type of environment where you do a lot of heavy lifting. It's not always easy. And it's not to say that other roles are easy, but there's something complex about selling. And I think that complexity comes from the ability to build relationships, work with people. There's a lot of problem solving that takes place. You're solving your customers' problems. You might be solving problems internally, problems with your technology. There's a lot of problem solving at various levels that take place. And it's, it's not for everybody. It takes a really tenacious person that's conversational, open to learning, somebody who is self-aware, somebody who's focused and determined and driven. And people are driven by various things. For the longest time in my career, I was driven by the things I didn't have and the things I wanted. That drive, and, and I refer back to some of the work that you and I have done over the years, that drive, well, it got me somewhere. It didn't take me to where I am today. It wasn't until we had a breakthrough, I want to say 2006, 2009, in some of the work that we were doing with you, where I really learned about taking responsibility, really focusing on where I was accountable within my own actions and how that accountability would drive the results that I was looking for, I was craving. We continued that work in 06. And one of the keys I often refer back to is really focusing on my sea field. And what was within my control. And I use this key in my personal life. I use this key in my professional life. I use it in in new encounters when setting up projects, when setting up. It helped me greatly when helping set up and coordinate my sister's wedding. It's something that can be used anywhere. There's certain things you influence. There's certain things you control. And people talk about how do you do that? And how do you find work-life balance? I think that's probably the biggest topic of conversation that deters people from going into sales is they think if you're in sales, you have no work-life balance, you're always on. Well, part of that's true. I think it's very possible for sellers, for sales leaders to find work-life balance. And I'd like to say that I think I found it. And I found it by focusing on my sea field. There's things that I control that only I can do. There's things that I influence and there's things I can frankly delegate. Right. What you're describing there is the C and I field. The C field is the control field. When we draw this sphere and draw around it the influencing field, what we call people to attention is to recognize that as long as you operate inside your control field, you are maximizing the return on your focus, maximizing the return on your energy, maximizing the return on your impact. Whereas when you start to worry about all that's outside of your control, and outside of your influence, then what you in actuality do is you dilute your power, you dilute your ability to to influence. And what you made reference to there was one of the keys we explored in the Emerald Keys program when we conducted these with WebEx. So just to catch the story, what's transition for you from Mitsubishi and how did you get to, to WebEx? Just to make sure we have that story. I was fortunate enough being in the Silicon Valley in what they called the dot-com era. So from Mitsubishi, I went on to other companies. I did stay very close to the SaaS industry. I've only left it once in my entire 20 plus year career. And ironically, I did leave it for something that was still communications driven. So very much within my space. After Mitsubishi, 
I continued to work through temp agencies, being a full-time student and can't really take on permanent work, you know, and through high school, going in independent studies one day a week, I needed Tuesdays off so I could go to school. (laughs) But I did work four 10-hour days to make me whole. And I was able to find companies that allowed me to do that until I graduated. From Mitsubishi, I went to other companies such as Speed Era Networks, Innerwise. I had a brief stint at Hello Direct. And I then went to... WebEx from there. And going to WebEx was one of the most pleasurable experiences in my career. And if I were to define that experience, a few words come to mind. It was defining, it was inspirational, and it really opened doors for me. What was it about the WebEx experience that was so defining? I think in that climate, taking communications to the cloud was a pretty big thing. You know, if you think about that era coming off of the tragedy of 9-11, nobody wanted to get on a plane. Businesses halted communications because communications were traditionally done face-to-face. A lot of people traveled for meetings and WebEx gave people the opportunity to run their businesses virtually, eliminating travel. I mean, it's one thing to eliminate travel because there's world crisis and people don't want to get on planes. It's another thing to eliminate travel because people want to reduce their T&E, their travel expense. It's another thing to empower virtual communications because it helps empower businesses. And I continue to do that since WebEx in my career. And that's what I find so intriguing about the collaboration space and why I've stayed so close to it over the years. So you are now already selling in the software as a service space, and you're also managing other salespeople. And so what do you at that point in time do to continue to grow and evolve as a professional? And how do you go about investing in your own professional growth at that time? Yeah, absolutely. I'll refer to part of your your latest book and talk a little bit about who my Spider-Man was. In your book, you Create New Futures, you reference a session that you did with the WebEx leaders. And this was, I believe, prior to, to me even becoming a leader. I wasn't a part of that session. You asked them to do an exercise where they talked about who their Spider-Man or woman was, somebody who really reached out to them to help define their pivoting moments. You know, for me, I was fortunate enough to have some pretty key mentors and I had a few, a few Spider-Men. Uh, one of them by the gentleman by the name of Dave Berman, president of Zoom Communications. As an SDR leader, Dave invited me to many meetings that I don't know if I really belonged at or should have had a seat at the table at, but he saw something there and he gave me a chance. And he gave me a seat at that table and allowed me to really share some of my insights and my ideas. And I think there was something about Dave in general. He had this ability to not only see potential in people, but to make them realize their potential tenfold. He had this ability to listen to ideas and take the ideas of the people who worked for him. And that, I think, really made WebEx propel. And we flew and we soared. And I remember I was an SDR, sales development manager at WebEx. I had built a few sales development teams and we were working side by side with you know, every remote office, every segment, regardless of size. And there we were, I found myself at this offsite meeting in Scottsdale, Arizona. I remember it like it's yesterday because it was a pivotal moment in my career. This was in late 2006, beginning 2007 timeframe. And Dave asked a question of his leaders at that offsite. He wanted us to come prepared the following day with an idea that could potentially generate $2 million in revenue. That's a pretty big question. And by the way, we were going to go to a baseball game that evening and stay up really late and have some fun. I couldn't stop thinking about the question he had asked. And I thought about it on the bus on the ride there. I thought about it during the game. I thought about it on my way home. And I stayed up all night and I had this idea I couldn't stop thinking about. It was just, you could imagine the fireworks in my brain as I'm thinking through this because As I thought through the numbers of Eve, I thought, man, I think this is a $10 million idea. And the climate that we were in, a lot of other players were entering the market, Citrix being one of them, and they were really commoditizing it. And I thought to myself, well, how would we get past that? And how do I leverage this as an opportunity to create this $2 million idea Dave's asking us about? 
as an SDR leader knew that our reps only had so much time in the day and they could only focus on certain opportunities. And unfortunately, some of the smaller opportunities weren't a key priority for them, but it would cause frustration for my team because we worked hard to develop those opportunities. So taking these challenges that we faced, I strung them together and came up with a concept that I introduced the next morning as an opportunity to form a team, a junior team that would execute at the lowest end of the market, what we ended up calling SOHO or SOHO segment, small office, home office, targeting the sub 10 employee companies at the lowest end where you have big line share of businesses in the United States represent that SOHO segment. And by doing so, I, and I ran the numbers, you know, just using the information we had in our own database, using our own conversion rates, using our own ASP. And I really thought I was onto something compelling that this could be a $10 million idea. Fast forward in 2007, my next Spider-Man gave me a call. His name's Ryan Azus. He's today the worldwide SVP of sales here at Ring Central. And he said, you know, I really liked your idea at the offsite. And I wanted to talk to you about, you know, working together to launch a team. What are your thoughts? And of course, you know, I was very excited and, and we, we did just that. We began working together late nights whenever we had spare time outside of our day jobs and started really collaborating on this idea I had. We launched it shortly after. And that first year of launching Soho, it was a $12 million result. And that's what really shaped my career and took it in the direction, made me continue to be passionate about serving small business, made me continue to be passionate about selling SaaS, and even more passionate about selling the opportunity for people to have communications. So I tie that back to your new book, Creating New Futures. I tie that back to something I've really talked to my team about quite a bit. And I've always looked at my biggest asset being time. And I've always looked that looked at that as my currency of work. And in your book, you talk about what is the currency of work and it being conversations. And you're absolutely right. The currency of work is conversations. And for years, while I thought the currency of work was time, it isn't. It's having these profound conversations that inspire new ideas that drive desired results. And those conversations give you that time back. And so going through the Emerald Keys and reading your book most recently, I think something's clicked and it's it's definitely changed the direction in which I'm leading my team today. Well, let's talk about it in a minute. Let me first reflect on your story. The power of that story is that because you have had the idea and the initiative that you presented, you then had the opportunity to actually bring this idea to life. And not only did you get the attention of, at that time, the senior managers for this idea, they actually pulled you into the exercise of building this team. And to me, that is the story of creating new futures, because it's when we step up, it's when we take initiatives, it's when we dare to think outside the frame, outside the box of what we already know. It's when we put ourselves in a position that where we are exposed to possibilities and ideas and challenges, that's when we become catalysts to uh, new futures. So right there is a powerful story. And I imagine that in many ways, this became the pattern and the ethos of you as a leader and also you as a coach and a mentor to people that you are now providing and opening opportunities uh, for. Absolutely. So you have had great success in building and scaling offshore and onshore sales teams in high velocity growth areas. What are some of the other guiding principles and or practices that enable you to scale, to build successful teams, to attract the best talent and to let them grow? Obviously, in the story you just shared that there is a huge big clue to it. Share a little more about what else do you do to foster and, and develop uh, these successful teams? Sure. I'll take it back to one of the more impactful keys that you've shared with us in the Emerald Keys work that we've done together. And that's really focusing on my learnability. And as a leader, you know, we're not just here to teach others, but we're also here to learn from others. And being open to new learnings and how you apply those learnings in a meaningful way to drive desired results is definitely key. 
And through that experience, you know, I, I have really focused on, you know, surveying the room when I'm in meetings with my team, with my leaders, with my reps, and trying to assess how open they are to do to new learnings. And there's times where I think especially in sales and especially at Mount Bend, you know, that's not the best time to approach someone. And I've taken that a step further to realize that as generations evolve, they, they digest content in different ways. You know, some reps really digest con- content in on-demand modules or in a fashion that is quick video where they can just listen and watch real quickly. Some really like instructor-led or leader-led sessions. Some just want to read read something really quickly on their own. And so as we've began, you know, training and developing our teams through the process of scaling, we've really thought about those three components and how do they, you know, apply to each individual's learnability. And I've learned to not approach the team, you know, at a time where they're just not open to new learnings. Mm. Right. Let me capture this idea of uh, learnability by saying the following, which is, I sometimes like to use the the famous old and still reliable question that Peter Drucker used to ask when he would meet with senior leaders and he would ask them, what business are you in? And part of that used to be an exercise in reframing what business they're in from thinking about the inputs and the the work they do to actually the the problem that they solve and let that define the kind of business that, that they're in. So I've taken the same question and I've asked a number of teams, what business do you believe you're in? And in recent years, what I've proposed often to many different teams, but especially in the technology space, that in actuality, we are all, first of all, in the business of learning. Because unlike perhaps... Uh, earlier stages, mid-20th century, for sure, you are now operating uh, at this day and age, towards the the end of the second decade of the 21st century, in such a high-velocity learning space that unless you are learning something every day, unless you're learning something every week, you are staying behind and soon you lose the, the relevancy, or at least you're losing the edge that you must be able to, to bring. And it, it is in that context that I proposed that indeed the most critical competency that you want to hire people for is their ability to learn. So 20 years ago, we used to hire people for what they know. I propose that today, you hire people even more for their ability to learn what they don't know yet. And that that becomes even a more critical factor in the hiring process. And it sounds to me that what you're describing is that you have worked hard to not only be on the cutting edge of that awareness and learning, but to also develop and customize the learning delivery to fit the the variety of different learning styles because we are each wired differently in the way we process and internalize information. Absolutely. And, you know, I I find myself very much in their shoes sometimes. There's, especially I think as leaders get busier and busier and professionals get busier and busier in the workforce, I personally have an hour and a half commute and a great way for me to develop new learnings is to listen to podcasts from my car, to listen to books on, you know, CD or, or whatever the case may be. And it helps me get through my commute. If I'm not on a conference call or conducting phone interviews in the car, I'm, I'm listening to something that helps me develop my learning. So that's become my new desired source of learnings. Um, for some of my reps, you know, the quick videos work better and we will continue to, evolve that because I, as people get busier in their lives and in their professions, their need and how they consume content will definitely change and evolve as well. Mm. What else through these years of experience and now at Ring Central, not only managing teams, but managing people that manage teams, 
and on a global scale, what what are some additional key learnings for you about managing people and and how to help people find the sweet spot and how to become a an agent that facilitate people to their broader greater possibility such that they deliver for themselves as they also deliver uh, for the objective and the vision that that you have for the team i find that you know in developing people the answer is usually within them and they don't realize that usually by frustration or by eagerness or by it just being new and uncertain but there's still the answer is usually within them my job as a leader is to really help them find that. I like to do that through a number of different ways. Most recently, I've been doing it through asking the what else question. As I, I refer back to your book, Creating New Futures, it's become a very handy tool, the what, yes, what else statement to open up some positive and constructive conversation to lead them to the answer they're looking for. I find that when the answer's within them and you help them bring it out, they it resonates with them and they take it a lot more seriously and they own that and they continue to use it and they stay committed to it, which helps really overall define their success. From a develop employee developmental standpoint and, and working with my reps and working with my teams, it's important to me that they have an open dialogue and that if there is something that they're unsure of, they're comfortable enough to say it. And I find that People will face different situations. They might be an expert at one thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be an expert at all things. And so even some of our top performers, as you introduce new products for them to sell, you introduce new situations, or they become new in leadership, they're going to need help and guidance along that way. And it's identifying what the new task is, what their level of comfortability is with it, identifying how willing they are to try new things, and then helping them guide them down that path. But more often than not, the answer is just within them. They just don't realize it. Right. That's just a, a beautiful awareness and an empowering realization, which is that people more often than not carry the answers to, to their own questions. It, it is by the ecology we create, by the discovery that we facilitate, by the questions we ask that we help them unleash and discover the know-how and and the very answers that that they were looking for when when you reflect on the best and most successful salespeople that have worked for you in your teams what would you say are the the traits of some of the most successful salespeople sure the most successful salespeople have a natural acumen business and sales acumen they have a fire in their belly, a passion to succeed and to do great things in their lives. They have a passion to help others and impact others in a positive way. They're open to new learning. They're conversational and they build relationships quickly. But most importantly, they're focused on themselves and, and not others. I think in the world of sales, it's so easy to be competitive and to be driven by material things or driven by things that other people have. And our most recent session in 2015 that you've done with Ring Central, you shared with us, it wasn't a part of your work. It was just something you said in conversation. And that was to be grounded in the presence of what you have versus being driven by the absence of what you don't have. And while all of the keys we went over in that session were valuable and important, that was my biggest takeaway from the session. And randomly, it came up in just conversation with you. And I find that to be something very important for sales professionals, right? It's so easy to compete and say that Joe has a better territory than Sarah does. And that's why Joe is outperforming Sarah. But if Sarah were to focus her attention on that and her energy on that, she's not going to get ahead. By focusing her attention, her energy, and that same energy on herself, she puts herself in a position to compete against Joe. And being grounded in the presence of what you have and, and living in that moment, being abundant and happy with what you have, the rest just naturally follows. It's inevitable. People who are focused on what other people are doing, they're using their energy in a very negative way that actually further hinders their ability to achieve the goal. I remember exactly where we were and where I stood. We were outside the 
conference facility that we were using. Uh, we were standing right by uh, next to the grass area, grassy area where we could see the, the view of the, the ocean. And I put my hand on the tree and I said to the large group uh, we had there s- surrounding that spot, look, this tree grows from the roots that it has developed in the ground, in the soil. It cannot grow from anything other than the presence of its own roots and from the trunk. And we as adults often make the mistake of looking somewhere else instead of recognizing that we can only grow from where we are. And that's the lesson of the law of the tree and the lesson of the forest. You never see one tree looking at another tree on the other side of the forest saying, hey, this other tree has a better exposure to the light and gets more of the volume of the forest canopy. It never does so. It actually grows in the most diligent and energized and robust way it can. And I I suppose that's the lesson of being present to where you are and finding the the resources and the, the creativity and the power inside your space with all the people and all the facilities and all the capabilities that are there to support you rather than falling in the trap of being too preoccupied with all that's not there with the absence. So that, that's a per- powerful uh, message. And thank you for reconnecting me to, to this moment uh, <laughs> uh, during this uh, actually quite memorable uh, workshop. L- let me follow on specifically and ask you to, to add on what you said about successful salespeople by asking you, so how do the best salespeople handle objection and rejection? What is the inner narrative? What is the the story that they tell themselves and how do they actually manage successfully through this process day in and day out? That's a great question. The best salespeople that are out there handling rejection every day do it through confidence. They do it through resilience. But I think most importantly, Aviv, they do it by seeking to understand why the rejection took place. Understanding why the customer chose another provider. What was it that either we lacked in our technology or I lacked in my process that drove you to choose a different vendor than RingCentral, for example? And in understanding that, you take away the key learnings and you demonstrate your desire to not only help the customer, but to learn. And I think end users and customers, they want to work with people who want to learn. And you know, we've had some times recently where we've lost a sale to a competitor, but those sales have come back. And I firmly believe that those sales came back to us because we took the time to understand why the rejection took place in the first place. And if it's a process issue on our end, we've shared that as a team and we've learned from each other and try not to repeat that same mistake or try it a different approach when in a situation that's similar. But really seeking to understand why the rejection took place in the first place is the best way to handle objections because you learn and you lessen your chance of rejection in the future. Right, right. So let me try to decode your answer there. The first principle is to not personalize the rejection, not take it in a personal way, not uh, see the rejection of the objection as something that reflects directly on you. That, that's lesson number one. Lesson number two you're describing is use it as an opportunity, as a learning opportunity. And lesson number three is enter the empathy mindset, try to put yourself in the shoes of the other person, try to understand their thought process, their need, and what was it that led them to make a different choice. And if you can do that, not only the sting of the the loss is not wasted, but rather it becomes a um, stimuli for growth and for development. And and as you said, you are not going to be making the same mistake. If it was something that was within your control field, you're not likely to make that same mistake again. Absolutely. Is there any other learning you can share in terms of how you help your team develop resilience? Because big part of sales is, is the 
resiliency that that's required. And I'm thinking that there is a personal element. There is also a team element. How do you use your teams to fortify, to strengthen, to encourage people to find resilience and to get up and, and charge again? That's a great question. For me, it really is about creating a supportive environment where people feel comfortable to share these things. If an individual takes these negative experiences and internalizes it and refrain from sharing it with others, it can continue to eat away at them, right? You've taught us many years ago that things magnify. And if you focus on the positive, you'll gain more positive. And if you focus on the negative, you'll gain more negative. I believe that the same rings true for when people internalize objections, obstacles, rejection. It it ends up magnifying within them. And, you know, it's, if you think about it, right, it, it eliminates your ability to take 100% responsibility for your own actions by remembering that you're in control of you and that you're responsible for you you gain that confidence to be able to share those experiences with others, which create a supportive enough environment for people to learn. So you just made a very interesting and fascinating bridge from generosity to resilience. Because I think what you're saying is that the, the more generous you are in offering your learning to your team and to your peers, the more you yourself will benefit uh, from their learning too, because of the exposure and the transparency that you create, and that by itself becomes a huge uh, resilience engine. I, I love that uh, bridge that, that you suggested and offered there from generosity to, to resilience. I, I think it's a huge, big message to, uh, to salespeople. Let me ask you one more uh, in that vein, Pfizer, about your own growth and, and your own uh, resiliency and what practices do you use to help you stay energized and renewed in yourself? That's a great question. And I, I find myself, as I think about this question, reflecting in most recent, I, I haven't taken, to be candid, as much time as I should in, in re-energizing re myself and rejuvenating myself. With a, new, with a new baby, now two years old, it's been a little bit more challenging. Because I find myself, not that I don't have the time, I just find myself wanting to spend the time I do have with him. Most recently, I've made it a point to try to separate myself from family and from work and, and go back to some of the, the practices that I held early in my career and throughout my career. And that's really taking the time to reflect. Mm. Having those moments of reflection can inspire some of the greatest learnings. And for me, most importantly, it inspires self-awareness. And you can't, you know, you can't go through life assuming that everybody, you know, that's nice to you likes you or likes what you're doing for them or what you offer to them as a leader in my case. And through those moments of reflection, it inspires some self-awareness that allow me to try to improve upon things and the feedback that I give myself. Right. What do you see as the common traits in women that succeed in leadership roles, specifically in the Silicon Valley? If, if there is, I mean, it's a huge generalization, but I'll ask it still because it, uh, it's been an interesting journey uh, for women, more and more women to, to take leadership roles in, in the Silicon Valley. Sure. Uh, the women that I've had the pleasure of working with in leadership roles in the Silicon Valley throughout my career have been organized, hardworking, tenacious, and positive. But I think those are all very surface comments. If I were to take it a layer deeper in my observations, what I found is that they really empower themselves to compete regardless of who else is on the playing field. They're not distracted by the members in the playing field. They're competing against them with that level of confidence. They're also strong communicators. They see opportunities and problems and challenges, and they take those opportunities and capitalize on them. The women that I've had the pleasure of working with that I admire have an eagerness to see other people succeed and to help people see their potential. And they take those as opportunities to not only improve the people that they're working with, but through those experiences, improve themselves. That's great. 
What advice would you give yourself if you were in your early 20s again and searching to find your professional path today? How would you advise you back at that stage if you were there today? That's a great question. I, uh, I definitely would have made smarter financial decisions. In my early 20s, being a young, successful sales rep, I, I definitely had my fair share of fun and I traveled quite a bit with my husband. <laughs> um, so I, w- I would have saved more money. That, that would have been the, the most, uh, most critical piece to, to building what I aspire now in my future to have this peaceful retirement. It would have definitely helped. From a professional standpoint, I would have advised myself to take advantage of asking more questions of the people I surrounded myself with. A great part of my success is attributed to the people that I've had the privilege of working with and really you know, being around these smart, talented, caring, successful people. I would have taken advantage to ask more questions, to have more conversations, to dig a layer or two deeper into the things that they said to make sure that I really took every learning I could from those experiences. That's a great answer. So as we approach this, uh, the, the lending of uh, this conversation, let me ask you one more question about the future. Where will you be in 10 years? In 10 years, where will I be? I haven't asked myself that question in some time. In 10 years, I'm really hoping to be in a place where I can look back at the people that have impacted and inspired and I'd like that component of my work to be the only work I focus on in 10 years. To Meaning be full. Yeah. that I'd like to offer my ability to help manage people and inspire people as the core focus of my work. Where today the core focus of my work is driving a business specific business result. I'd like my result to be in people instead of revenue for a specific product. Mm using your experience, using your talent to inspire people to their possibility and to their growth. Yes. Well, Faiza, thank you uh, for this rich exploration with you today. As we come to lending, what parting wisdom would you like to offer to people listening to uh, create new futures? Take the time to have those conversations, to open up the dialogue the how, the what, the why questions. It really gets people going on a, on a different level. Thank you so very much. Uh, it's been a great uh, exploration today. Thank you, Aviv. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey, and it's your time to take action. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First, Be grounded in the presence of what you have instead of the absence of what you don't have. Find abundance here and now in what is already present. Second, focus on your learnability, the ability to learn in every situation. Objection and rejection are learning opportunities. Be confident, resilient, and tenacious. Seek to understand and apply your learning. This is the engine that will propel you forward. Third, promote the best in your people. Your job as a leader is to help them find the answer, not to have all the answers ready. The greatest joy of leadership is seeing other people discover their talent and succeed. One more thing. You can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time.